Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. All right, so this is a very stupid and horrible joke. I heard it as a little kid. Here it goes. Why don't Batman and Robin go fishing more often? Because Robin eats all the worms. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a charmingly bad joke from musician <laughs> Trevor Powers, a.k.a. Youth Lagoon. That'll help break the ice. Youth Lagoon's on tour now. Later, we'll speak with the directors of the Oscar-nominated documentary Undefeated. Which is about our radio careers. No, it is not. No, it's not. <laughs> but also coming up, we have The Shins. They have a new album coming out, and we'll speak with their frontman, James Mercer. Plus, an excerpt from author Chris Lee's new book, and we learn why Brits are fools for fools. But first, the news. Not for you, though, people of Podcast Town. You take the express train straight to the show. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. In a few minutes, in honor of this weekend's Grammy Awards, music writer Andy Herman gives us his list of the weirdest bands of the year. We've gone beyond Gaga. Way beyond. (laughs) Uh, Also coming up, we learn how the board game Monopoly graduated from college. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing this. Super Bowl halftime blunder. Singer M.I.A. flashes her middle finger to the cameras during the performance. Santorum winning Missouri as well as Minnesota and Colorado. A $25 billion deal to provide relief to millions of homeowners facing foreclosure. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Aaron Britt. He is the deputy editor of Dwell Magazine. Aaron What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about the architecture of Pyongyang, North Korea. (laughs) How is that possible? Have you been? (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, that's the thing. There's a new guidebook to the architecture of Pyongyang that comes out in a couple of weeks. And it's Uh incredible because it's to a place that you simply cannot go. That's fascinating. I don't think of Pyongyang, you know, as an architectural mecca. (laughs) Does it have the flavor of old Soviet Union? It It doesn't have any old flavor at all. You can't find a building that's more than 60 years old. Something like 95% of the city was destroyed in the Korean War. But, you know, the problem is, like, so this person says, right? Because (laughs) it's it's just like a food critic reviewing, like, saber-toothed tiger or something. Like, I don't know. Sure, okay. That sounds right to me. Yeah, I I guess that's true. We do do have to take him at his word. But um, this guidebook's incredible. It comes in two volumes. The first volume is just a direct English translation of an officially approved North Korean architectural guide because that's the only way he could get the photographs. Then volume two has all the criticism, anything that wouldn't fly with the party. Has he actually been there or is this basically his analysis of these photos from the original book? He's been there five different times. But what he told me, I spoke with him yesterday, you are accompanied by a guide, an interpreter, and a chauffeur at every step. He said the only time you're by yourself is when you're literally in your hotel room. Again, if the guy's lying, no one will know. And when we find, if it finally does open up, he can say, oh, it really changed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. look yeah. at this. It's, it's true. He's completely off the hook. This is uh, <laughs> consequence-free architecture criticism. Aaron Britt, thanks so much for the small talk. You bet. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink 
to serve along with it. It's our thoughtful yet tipsy history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1935, Parker Brothers started marketing the board game Monopoly. Yes, and the story of how that happened is as involved as the game itself. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. The game about becoming a rich landlord was invented by a woman who hated rich landlords. Her name was Elizabeth McGee, and in 1904, she patented a board game in which players bought and sold property. Her goal? To educate people. She figured it would demonstrate how land monopolies made the owners rich and left the renters broke. She called it the landlord's game. At first, McGee published the game herself, but in 1910, she offered it to Parker Brothers. They declined too educational, they said, and they were kind of right, because meanwhile, actual economics professors discovered the game and had students play it in class. Those students taught the game to friends using homemade boards. Soon it spread around the East Coast. Folks added their own rules. They renamed the game's make-believe parcels of land after streets in their hometowns. And in 1933, it reached Philadelphia, where an unemployed salesman named Charles Darrow played it and got a big idea. Darrow manufactured his own version of the game. He sold thousands of them in Philly department stores. People loved it. And when Parker Brothers heard about that, they agreed to market Monopoly. Darrow's new name for the game they'd turned down 25 years earlier. Time, the company thought Darrow was the sole inventor. But when they found McGee's patents, they had to strike a deal. As payment for not suing them, they gave her 500 bucks and published three of her games. None did as well as Monopoly, though. It made Charles Darrow a millionaire. So that's the history. Now for the drink. We're speaking with Dimitri Karnesis. He is a bartender at Doc's Oyster House in Atlantic City. It's located on Atlantic Avenue, and if that sounds familiar, that's because the properties in Charles Darrow's Monopoly were named after Atlantic City streets. Dimitri, what cocktail did this story inspire you to make? I came up with what I like to call the boardwalk fizz. It's kind of a <laughs> classic play on the French 75 and the famous Ramos gin fizz. All right, so how do you make the boardwalk fizz? I muddled a lemon. Okay. And I used one and a half ounces of uh, Ransom Old Tom Gin, which is a classic 1800s kind of recipe for gin. And it's a brown gin to, you know, kind of have that old classic feel to it. That seems crazy to me, though. Isn't the whole point of gin is that it's not brown? It's absolutely fantastic. All right. Well, I still think brown gin's whiskey. Uh, (laughs) What else is in your drink? Um, One egg white. Simple syrup to taste. Um, And then what I did was I shook it dry to really get like a good froth and a good head on it. Then I added ice, shook it a bit more, and then uh, I added champagne just for a little bit of that park place kind of decadence. Uh huh. Then strained it into a classic champagne coupe glass. And if you don't have that, that's fine. Just use a martini glass. And then a couple of dashes of bitters on top. All right. And then if you happen to have a monocle lying around, go for it. <laughs> so you can garnish it with the monocle. I was thinking you could garnish it with one of those little red houses or green houses, like a hotel. Or you can use the, uh, the classic roadster that comes with the game. Oh, that's right. So, Dimitri, are you from Atlantic City? 
No, not originally. I was born and raised in Savannah, Georgia, but uh, I've been here for quite a while, and I've been at Docs for for quite a while as well. Right. And so, do you uh, move properties there? Like, do you own any property in Lenox City, and do you flip them and play all sorts of Monopoly games in real life there? I do, and then I, I charge astronomical rent if you happen to land on Georgia Avenue. <laughs> So, Brendan, since you called a bar on the real Atlantic Avenue for that drink, yes. I thought I would look into what the real properties from the Monopoly board uh-huh. are actually worth today in real life. All right, good idea. I got a good one. Vermont Avenue. Okay, that's like the cheap one where houses are like six bucks in the game. That is right. Well, as of 2010, a triplex on actual Vermont Avenue is worth over a million dollars. Wow. Yeah. It is true. So basically, you need to earn royalties from Monopoly to be able to afford yes. yeah, a house on Monopoly. It's board. ironic. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, we have all of our cocktail recipes on our website. Go directly to dinnerpartydownload.org. Do not collect $200. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. Our guest today is Andy Herman. He is the national music editor at MetroMix.com. But along with co-creator Jake Manson, he also writes about weird bands on his blog, Weirdest Band in the World. Just in time for the Grammy Awards, he brings us this list. Hi, I'm Andy Herman. These are three of the weirdest bands in the past year. Uh, These are not bands that you're going to hear about at the Grammys, but if there were a Grammy category called Weirdest Bands, they would certainly be among the nominees. Number one, Hank III, a.k.a. Hank Williams III, grandson of Hank Williams Sr., son of Hank Williams Jr. Uh, He just recently released three albums on the same day. One was sort of country stuff. Uh, Then he also released a stoner metal album, but the one we're going to talk about was called Three Bar Ranch Cattle Callin'. Hank Three's attempt to create an entirely new genre of music that he calls cattlecore. It is uh, the sound of cattle auctioneers set to speed metal. Uh, I don't really know who the fan base is for Cattle Callin'. A lot of Hank 3's own fans, based on the comments that I've seen on YouTube, assume that it's some sort of joke or attempt to uh, anger his fan base. I think it might go down in history as sort of on par with Lou Reed's Metal Machine music for albums that are great in concept but impossible to actually listen to all the way through. Number two is a band called I Wrestled a Bear Once. All one word, I Wrestled a Bear Once. They're also in the genre of metal, and actually if you go visit Weirdest Band in the World, you will notice that style of music just seems to inspire a lot of weirdness. Um, A typical I Wrestled a Bear Once song can go from grindcore to a Texas two-step to some sort of jazz fusion, to some sort of ambient electronica, and then back to sort of the most face-melting heavy metal you've ever heard in your life.
But here's what really sets them apart. Their lead vocalist is a girl. Her name is Krista Cameron, and she is in fact making all of those sounds. It's also worth noting that um, they are experts at memorable song titles. Some recent examples include uh, Deodorant Can't Fix Ugly and I'm Cold and There Are Wolves After Me. They're one of my favorites. Last but not least, the probably most interesting new weird band to emerge from Japan in 2011 was a band called Triple Nipples. That's actually spelled with three Ps, both in triple and in nipples. They are a all-female electro-pop trio. In many ways, they're kind of the Lady Gaga of Japan. Which, of course, means that their costumes are far more bizarre and outlandish than anything Lady Gaga's ever come up with, and the music is insane. Uh, examples of some of their outfits include cow costumes that squirt either milk or Bailey's Irish cream, or possibly both. Uh, headdresses made out of spaghetti, and their songs are about such happy, wholesome subjects as eyeballs melting out of eye sockets. If you wanna make it in I don't necessarily listen to the bands that we just featured for fun. I am a fan of many of the bands on Weirdest Band in the World. They're just kind of inherently fascinating. They're just freaks, and they're sort of fantastic just for being freaks, whether the product of their freakery is something that you would actually become a fan of or not. The guest list from Andy Herman. He's co-creator of the website weirdestbandintheworld.com. Cattle Colin, man. Appropriately named I love it. But, you know, Brendan, I hate to say it, the singer in I Wrestled a Bear Once totally swiped her vocal delivery for me. Oh, really? Yeah. She's basically copying the noise I make when some jerk makes a hard left turn without signaling. <laughs> it's kind of like a raw animal scream. Yeah, it's super primitive. <laughs> Hardcore. All right, people, uh, we're going to take a break. <laughs> A little bit later, I chat with James Mercer, frontman of the band The Shins. And coming up next, your etiquette questions answered by the descendants of Emily Post. Yes, when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newham. Coming up, author Chris Lee reads from her new collection of stories. And the directors of the documentary Undefeated tell us the secret to getting an Oscar nomination is cluelessness. When we finally just started to admit we didn't know what we were doing, things started working yeah. out for us. <laughs> but first, it's time for our etiquette segment. And here to answer your questions this week about how to behave are Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning of the Emily Post Institute. They are two of our favorite etiquette experts, mainly because they're extremely nice, but also because they are the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post, which may be why they're extremely nice. They are co-authors of Emily Post Etiquette, 18th edition, and hello, you two. Hello. Good afternoon. I do have to ask, you've sort of joked about this in the past, but seriously, was it when you were growing up, there must have been a higher premium placed on politeness in your household than in others. Certainly you noticed a difference when you went to other people's houses. It really depends on the house. I mean, <laughs> well, and, I and, and when, in the center of the storm, you don't necessarily always realize that it. That you're in it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's just what you're used to. And, and I'll tell you, I got to say, I, I, I miss our usual lead-in joke, the Genetiquette joke. Me, uh, me yeah, too. Yeah, that's a good joke. Keep that joke. <laughs> we have said in the past that you were genetically engineered for etiquette, hence Genetiquette. I was vetoed my Genetiquette. We've done it once. We are going to make T-shirts and brand it. 
They're going to have bumper stickers at the Post Institute. Seriously. They should. All the Subarus in Vermont are going to have We're going to make all this money off your joke. See, I thought it would be impolite to tell the same joke twice with the same guest. Oh, no, no, no. No, not with us. No. When it's about us, we like it even more. <laughs> yeah, it's comforting. It's called a, It's like a signature zing. <laughs> and you're talking to Vermonters. The older, the drier the joke, the better. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. Yeah, let's go. You want to go to our first question? Yeah, we have a few questions. Uh, the first one comes from Jody. We don't know where she's from. She contacted us via Facebook. Uh, she has a question. If your place of work frequently has meetings or travel during lunch hours, is it appropriate to pack and then eat your own lunch if the group is, say, in the car for a two-hour drive, especially since the person in charge never wants to stop and eat? Hmm, sounds like a hypothetical. <laughs> or do you suck it up and let your blood sugar drop? Meals on the go. A couple, couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, you don't want to do anything too smelly, too messy. Yeah. Perfectly right. okay. Keep your blood sugar up. Pack a granola bar, peanut butter and jelly sandwich with the crust cut off, whatever you prefer. <laughs> <laughs> but let's avoid the, the stinky Italian sub, the, the multiple Tupperwares that need to be combined. Yeah, and... sure. But I think the heart of what this person's asking is sort of, you know, we're going to be on a long drive. I want to pack for myself. Yep. Is that okay to eat when yeah. others are Are other aren't? people going to be jealous or yeah. feel like they're missing it? And I think that's something where Jody could easily talk with people before they go on the trip and say, hey, I was <laughs> thinking about packing a lunch because Jimmy here never wants to stop. So <laughs> I think it's fine for her to yeah. address the issue. Clearly she has a problem with it and I don't want her blood sugar dropping. Or maybe she only needs to do this once or twice and do some talking like, mmm, this is so good. I'm so relaxed. And that would be our passive aggressive way. <laughs> you know what? Speaking mm -hmm. of passive aggressive, I, I'm looking ahead. I see we have a question about, uh, that. about something similar. This is Mike in Minnesota who asks... What is a polite, assertive way of saying, I don't want to discuss this topic with you because I know there's no point? What a great Minnesota question. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> That's right. And he actually concludes the message by saying he doesn't want to be passive aggressive. Um, I find a lot of times people, when you say something like, I don't want to talk about this, it is taken as timid. And sometimes someone will push farther. They'll, you know, they'll just look at that mm. as, you know, tiptoeing around it. If he needs to be more assertive, I would say something like, I do not, I am not going to talk about this with you. You know, you don't have to be mean about it, but just firmly. And it's, you know, the best thing you can do is to have something in your back pocket to go to next. You know, I'm not going to talk about uh, this with you, but the Super Bowl is next weekend. So you're, <laughs> so you're advocating for aggressive aggressiveness. I'm advocating for if polite aggressiveness doesn't work. To, to okay. go for aggressive aggressiveness. I think we have another tagline. Yeah. Um, no. But I have a question quickly. Daniel, you often, uh, no, not to isolate, but you often recommend being passive aggressive, though. I've learned from you guys. Well, it depends. That part of etiquette is sometimes, you know. So absolutely. I, I can't listen to a, a, a good answer like that and not think about the moderating phrases that might serve to dial the situation back. And you can always take <laughs> responsibility yourself. Say, you know, I, I feel so strongly about this. It's better if I don't get into it. You can pussyfoot around it. <laughs> Great. I feel like that's maybe a better thing when we're talking about, say, a husband and wife, where it's not quite so easy to just say, no, I just refuse to speak of this yeah. for the rest of our lives. The irony being that my parents just went through this at the at the staff meeting this morning. <laughs> really? What happened? It was just, you know, like they were they were debating about something and, and one of them flat out said to the other one, I'm not going to argue about with this now. And that was it. Conversation was done. <laughs> wow. Shut down. Man. And we were saying, you know, like, hey, you know, you probably could have done that in a little bit more polite, gentle way. <laughs> I know all the posts were like, hey, <laughs> what are we doing hey. here? It's called the Post Institute. Yeah, we're going to have to go to the Roberts Rule of Order 
university. This is like having a fight outside the Museum of Tolerance. We can't do this. All right. Speaking of tolerance, man, the transitions are just coming. (laughs) This comes from Monique, again, from Facebook. Her question is, what do you do when the host takes your hand to say grace, but it's really not your thing? It's a great question. I really like this one. Yeah. You know, I do too. And I, and I went back to our book to double check. It, it is a potential trouble area. It, we, we really look at the host and the guest role here to, to determine mm. appropriate behavior. If you're the host and a blessing is part of the way you approach a meal that, that you're serving, it's entirely reasonable to have a small blessing. And at the same time, you don't want to impose on folks um, from a different religious tradition your faith or beliefs. Yeah. So that's also something to think about as a host. As a guest, you probably don't want to suggest it, but you do want to follow along the way you would if you were a, a, yeah. a guest. When in Rome. At church yep. or at a religious it, service that you're not familiar with. See, as a guest, I've, this brings up a couple of things. As a guest, I think you don't have to say amen. I think that's kind of what, in my head, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's what makes me feel like, you know what, I, really? I'll do the, I, I, like the, I like the fellowship. Yeah. Yep. But if you, you know, you don't have to say amen, I feel like somehow that makes it not. <laughs> you didn't religiously uh, yeah. participate. Yeah, it's like going to church, you don't take communion. You know, you just kind of show up, you, you respect the ceremony, but you don't. Absolutely. Respect is so important. And in the the 18th edition, we talk about the the sort of minimum expected level of participation is that you do hold hands. But here's my other problem with this, okay? Because in etiquette, you don't want to harm yourself. And sometimes it's germ time and you're sitting next to say your nephew. I knew this was coming. <laughs> I think he was like 12 and you have to hold his hand right before you eat food. But am I right? My, my first instinct there is you got to respect somebody's religion before you sort of symbolically accuse them of being unwashed. No, but I'm <laughs> saying you can't use Purell immediately holding your no. nephew's hand at the dinner Well, you're table. hoping that his dear mother has taught him to wash his hands before he comes to the table. But you know, if you really are the germaphobe, after, you know, excuse yourself for a second, go wash your hands. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Because you know. I don't think God's going to help me with the stomach flu, you know? <laughs> you might pray more, though. Well, that's true. Uh, all right, the posts. Yeah. Genetically designed <laughs> to answer your etiquette questions. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending. Thanks once again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much, gentlemen. And people, we know some of you are germaphobes. Yeah, Brendan cannot be the only one. I, I can't be. And some of you, like Rico Galliano, are impolite spreaders of contagion. That's right. Stay over there. <laughs> Either way, we're sure you have some behavior that needs correcting. Send us your etiquette questions, and you might hear the answer on the actual radio. Email us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, or call our hotline, a.k.a. the phone at Brendan's Cubicle. It's 213-621-3554. Leave a clean message. Eavesdrop. Writer Chris Lee's debut collection of short stories just came out. It's called Drifting House. One of its themes is the Korean immigrant experience in America. Today we overhear her reading some dinner party worthy excerpts. Hi, I'm Chris Lee. Here's an excerpt from At the Edge of the World, one of the stories in the collection. The story is about one of the few North Korean refugee families now living in Los Angeles. His name was Myung-sook Lee at home and Mark Lee at school. He was nine years old and he knew everything. He knew that in Peru, one bush housed more ant species than all of the United Kingdom and that rainforests above 3,000 feet were called cloud forests. That dogs had nose prints the way humans had fingerprints. That a violin contained more than 70 pieces of wood 
and that 99% of what people bought they didn't use after six months. He knew that his sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Whitney, tried to make him skip another grade because he corrected her grammar mistakes out loud and napped during sharing time, and that his parents were melancholy when they ordered him pizza for dinner instead of making rice, or spoke quietly about their hometown and family that might be dead or alive, they would never know, or about America passing the North Korean Human Rights Act in 2004 but so far had only let 200 of their people, only 200, including their family, into the country. He knew that Roberto the bully was right, that Mark's father couldn't really love him because he wasn't his real father. He knew you were supposed to have friends, but he didn't care. He knew that President Lincoln was so depressed he was afraid of carrying a penknife in case he might kill himself and that William Taft was the world's heaviest president ever. Today was May 17, 2009. He knew everything. For example, no matter how normal his parents pretended they were, he knew they were different. Sure, they worked at normal jobs, his mother as a waitress in a kalbi restaurant, and his stepfather exterminating bugs and managing the duplex they lived in. His mother read him Korean folk tales, and his father taught him algebra, his oversized dandelion head wagging on the short stalk of his body. And though Mark spotted shortcuts that would save a calculation or two, he feigned confusion so his father could feel helpful. Then suddenly, the State Department would call, or his father would notice someone following their used Kia. Last week, an official in charge of the four, now three, North Koreans in Los Angeles County, he, his mother, his father, and a man who had killed himself last year, visited. He congratulated them on how quickly they had adapted, calling them model refugee cases. His father's eyebrows nodded together, but he smiled and said, I've never considered myself some case, then changed the subject. Once, his father had believed in the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-il, the way the Korean immigrant community around them believed in God. Is he better than his dad, Kim Il-sung? Mark asked that night at the dinner table. He's a very, very bad man, his father said, as quietly as his shuffle, his signature on paper, and the neutral colors he wore that made him resemble an animal seeking camouflage. Author Chris Lee reading from one of the stories in her new collection called Drifting House. You're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now, time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we talk with someone who knows something we don't. So if the topic comes up in conversation, we can hold our own. Our guests today are T.J. Martin and Daniel Lindsay. They co-directed Undefeated, which is up for an Oscar in a couple of weeks for Best Documentary. And we are going to ask them about what it takes to make a documentary like this. T.J., hello. Good afternoon. And Daniel, hi. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good, but not as good as you. You've got an Oscar coming, possibly. <laughs> it sounds nice. 
Uh, I like how your intro makes it seem like we actually know what we're know doing. Know what we're doing. That's what I was going to say, too. <laughs> you don't have a BA in filmmaking? Or at least a... Uh, no. No. Both self-taught. And yeah. actually, I think the best thing we've learned is that we, when we finally just started to admit we didn't know what we were doing. But... All of a sudden, things started working yeah. out for us. <laughs> well, this is your second film. You did, your first film was called... Uh, Last Cup. Which is about beer pong. It's about the World Series of beer pong, yeah. This is a much different kind of sports movie. This follows a season in the life of a high school football team in North Memphis. Yeah, correct. And I don't want to be a spoiler. They have a surprising season, let us say. Mm -hmm. My first question that I would like you to tell me about is, how could you possibly have known that this was going to be as dramatic as it was what kind of research do you do no we didn't we didn't know what would happen and we didn't funny enough it didn't really matter to us it was uh, i will give something away i mean the film is called undefeated but they don't go undefeated and yeah. it didn't really matter to us whether they won every game or didn't win a game um you know the the big thing i think about documentaries is you're oftentimes you have to just go on your instincts and you're kind of following a story but the story tells you what it's going to be yeah oc brown one of the students in the film. Um, he's the one who initially kind of brought us to Memphis. Uh, it was his story, really. Kind of an intimate coming-of-age film um, about this kid kind of navigating this interesting world as he's being courted by all of these colleges. But it doesn't end up that way. I mean, it Not ends up all. being no. as much about the coach of this team. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so going, we went in there to do kind of an exploratory mission, and then that's when we met the coach and met some of the other players, and it kind of grew in scale and scope. Seeing how kind of emotionally candid uh, a lot of the kids were in front of the camera, that's when we, at least we knew that if anything, we were going to get something interesting because they were so honest in front of the camera. Well, this is my second question. Some of these kids, this is not an easy area of Memphis that you went to. This, and some of these kids are from really tough backgrounds. How did you get this kind of intimacy with these really tough cases? Number one was we quickly realized just on our first trip to Memphis that to do it, we were going to have to move to Memphis. So we uprooted our lives from L.A. and moved to Memphis for nine months, went to practice every day, went to school almost every day. And I think just showing that commitment, you know, a lot of a lot of these guys, there isn't a lot of consistency in their life. Um, and I think that's also why the coach had so much success with them is that he was so consistent after years and years. Like he never he never walked away. And I think the second thing, too, is just being genuinely interested in their stories. I don't think a lot of those guys have people that ask them personal questions. But to me, like the first reaction I would have is what's it to do? You know, what, <laughs> yeah. what are you, how are you going to use that information to make me look bad or hurt me in some way? Well, yeah. you know what it is? I mean, this uh. is radio, so you can't see me and TJ, but I think <laughs> the fact of our stature and they knew they could just beat us up if we did anything like You're not wrong. football yeah. type people. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I mean, you're also got to keep in mind, you're, the crew is in the building right now. It's just yeah. the, there was only the two of us that shot the film, cut the film, did sound. directed the film. We did all the sound. There was. I think that's, I mean, that has to be the biggest thing. Yeah. I mean, they so quickly, you know, it's it's actually funny because they, Three months into the process, we were in the cafeteria shooting one day and talking to one of the guys, and he's like, so, Dan, who's going to play me in the movie? And I was like, what? No, this this, this is the movie. And I, I, don't, as I don't think anybody really ever took us that seriously, no. just because our cameras were kind of these smaller cameras. And, like, <laughs> yeah. if, like, if the news came to a game, they'd have, like, big mics and yeah. big cameras. and That looked yeah. much more professional. Yeah, and so they were just like, these guys don't know what yeah. they're doing. Yeah, and infinitely swaddable. Yeah. <laughs> Um, speaking of other folks, you know, shooting football, we see football all the time. Mm -hmm. There have been so many football movies. How do you do a sports documentary and not make it cliched? It's, I mean, it's funny though. <clears throat> we would ever, we fought the sports film for a yeah. long time. How so? We went into it being kept on telling each other that this was going to be, you know, a human interest piece and all the drama was going to really unfold off of the field. 
And then we just kind of found ourselves in this routine of like showing up to school and showing up to practice. And then at practice, it was undeniable that these really dramatic things were happening on the field. Mm -hmm. So it was at that point we were just kind of just a subtle shift of lens and followed a little bit more of the football narrative. So, I mean, genre-wise, it's a sports film. The themes that we explore are still much more universal. I think our own ignorance, or at least my own ignorance, too. Like, I mean, I had never watched Friday Night Lights, the movie or the television show. You started Um, watching the show, like, halfway through the season. Really? I would think that you would just avoid that, like, the plague for (laughs) fear that you would be, (laughs) you know, overly influenced by it or something. I think it was more just to see how they're... Because, like, we we went to go film the first game. We're like, oh, this will be easy, filming football. And then it's like, oh, my God, this is really, really difficult. No way. That's yeah. why they invented yeah. the slow motion replay. No, I'm telling like, I have so much respect for the NFL films guy. Like, the guys that can follow a ball in midair while you're on a long lens, it is yeah. so difficult. Well, TJ, Dan, thanks so much for Thank schooling you. us. Maybe next time you can, when you figure it out, you can tell us how to follow a football with a long lens. Yes. <laughs> we will do that. That'll take a long time. T.J. Martin and Daniel Lindsay, they co-directed Undefeated. It's nominated for Best Documentary. And Brendan, I was actually thinking while I was talking to them, Uh here are these two young guys making a movie for nothing. Now they're up for an Oscar. Who is doing the documentary Ah. about them? Good point. True. It's an uplifting story, hopefully. Maybe they'll beat the odds Uh, and win. (laughs) If I know movies. (laughs) All right, folks, we'll take a break. When we return, James Mercer of the band The Shins shares some Cold War memories. My dad would tell me, he would be like, there are no nuclear weapons in Albuquerque. That was total disinformation. Takes me back, man. It's nostalgic for fear. It's a strange thing. Yeah. More where that came from when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we hear a new track from Dr. Dog, the indie rock band from Philadelphia. Yes, they're in our HMO network, I think. So we, Really? We really have them. Look at my fingers kind of been hurting. <laughs> but first, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, this week, we are going to the United Kingdom. Nice! Finally, we got a grant. No, this is... I should pack an umbrella. No, I meant it metaphorically. Uh, apparently, just like Americans are getting into traditional comfort foods, uh-huh. so are the Brits. There are these upscale restaurants and supermarkets over there suddenly selling tons of old-school English puddings based on recipes from, in some cases, the Victorian era. So I reached out to Carolyn Yeldum. She is a food historian in London. And I asked her, first of all, what the Brits mean when they say pudding. Well, a pudding covers quite a wide range of terms. The classic pudding is a boiled suet pudding, like Christmas pudding. Well, first of all, what is that? What is a Christmas pudding? Oh, <laughs> it's a flour and breadcrumb and suet. What is suet? <laughs> <laughs> it's a type of fat. Oh, oh, I see. You guys speak a different language over there. I thought we were all shared a common language. Uh, divided by a common language, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Um, and lots of dried fruit and eggs often and alcohol, different types of alcohol. Mm. And that is boiled for hours. And it's served traditionally in England on Christmas Day. So that's the classic pudding. But you're saying that the term can mean more than that. There, there were all sorts of these boiled suet puddings. But then it, it moves into what we might call dessert today. So there's all sorts of tarts and flans and caramels that are also called puddings. 
colloquial term for a sweet course. So any dessert, like ice cream could be a type of pudding, maybe. Yes, yes, you'd get children saying, can I have ice cream for pud? I see. <laughs> I love that you call it pud, by the way. It's the cutest word. It's like something you'd name a cat. <laughs> so there's a vast range of what you can get in these things. What makes them... Victorian? Like, why did they become so popular in Victorian times? Uh, to be honest, they're really popular from the 17th century through probably the early 20th century. But they do are associated with the Victorian era because I think we have this image of the Victorian era as this family-orientated, solid, comfortable, um, secure. We look back to the Victorian era as being all that, and maybe that's some of the things we want to bring into our modern lives that we perceive as insecure. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's nonsense. The Victorian era was far <laughs> from secure and solid. They had bank failures on a regular basis. Um, of course. B- businessmen going bankrupt. Then in a way, it actually does make sense to bring back <laughs> Victorian puddings. <laughs> it seems very similar to our era. But a lot of these puddings, especially the, the plainer suet ones, I was talking about, were family desserts. They're not the the posh ones. They had a whole range of very highly decorated ones. The the amount of time that went into decoration was enormous. Like what? I mean, like, can you describe one? Well, they made wedding cake today look restrained and elegant. (laughs) Wild colours, piped icing, piped um, cream all over them. They went way overboard, in my opinion. So kind of the Victorian version of Cake Boss on, you know, the Food Network. Yes, that, the inspiration definitely lies there. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about some of the more humble puddings of this era that are sort of making a comeback. I love the names of some of these things. Uh, first of all, you recently worked with the National Trust in Britain, which, among other things, preserves historic British pubs, on reviving something called the Winifred Pudding? That's a very nice pudding, um, based on bread that you soak in milk, and entirely separately you take butter and sugar and cream that as though you're about to make a cake, Mm. then add lemon juice and lemon oil and some egg and the previously soaked breadcrumbs and put that in a puff pastry lining and bake it. Like a bread pudding in a pastry? Yes, God, that sounds like double heaven. I love bread pudding. (laughs) That is amazing. And it it has a very nice lemon tang to it, so it's quite refreshing. All right. So here's the second thing, though. A gooseberry fool, which to me just is the most hilarious. (laughs) It sounds like a clown. I love gooseberry fool. I love all fools, actually. They are very, very bad for you, though. To make a gooseberry fool, you poach gooseberries in, depending on how ripe they are, some sugar, some water. Let that go cold. You want it pretty thick, like sort of applesauce thickness. And then you take heavy cream. Ah, yes. Beat that fairly solid and mix those two together. It, it's cream and fruit, a fool. They are gorgeous. All right. And finally, what is a blancmange? That, I mean, it's sort of surprising to me that there's a French term for an English dessert. Ah. You guys didn't get along that well for a long time. Oh, well, now you, you go back to my origins as a medieval cook. The blanc manger means white ah. meat, something white to eat. And originally it's either chicken or fish mixed with ground rice and ground almonds, a little bit of sugar, and sometimes some sweet spices like uh, cinnamon. It's a savoury dessert. It's not a dessert. It's actually originally a dish for the sick. That's where it starts. And it gradually through the centuries gets sweeter and it loses the meat. 
And what most people would think of as a blancmange today is a sweet, fruit-flavoured, but probably hasn't got any fruit in it, milky mould. You, you put it into a mould, let it set and turn it out. And it was often served in schools. Of course. <laughs> it sounds super healthy. Convenient, I think, is the... <laughs> yeah, is the right word. It's also, I just love how you can always trust humanity to take something fairly healthy and turn it into candy. <laughs> Food historian Carolyn Yeldum. We've got her recipe for Winifred pudding on our website, by the way. That's at dinnerpartydownload.org, and it looks very tasty. Enrico, I think I'm going to make an audio clip of her saying, I love fools, <laughs> and play it to myself whenever I'm feeling down. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> it's so nice of her. Perky right up. She could read the McDonald's dollar menu. It would sound elegant. <laughs> I think there's actually suet on that. Our guest of honor this week is James Mercer. He is the man behind The Shins, a beloved indie rock band who were nominated for a Grammy for their last album, Wincing the Night Away. They have a new album coming out in a few weeks called Port of Morrow. And this week they released the first single from it, simply called Simple Song. And James, I was wondering if you could tell us how a song like this comes into being. Chords. How did I write it? Lyrics, the, yeah, the craft right. of it. This particular song, um, I remember I was sitting on the living room floor with my, my wife was sitting there on the couch, and um, I, I was doing this thing, and I kind of thought of it as sort of a march. Dun, 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 dun. Somehow that was enjoyable to play, and then I started humming that melody, and pretty quickly the words just started coming out. This doesn't usually happen for me. Okay. You know, usually it's like I'll come up with maybe the, the chords and a little bit of a melodic idea. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. I record it, and I kind of go back to it later. It's like a sketch. Yeah, but this particular song, it was like the first two verses, Just I just wrote almost as quickly as I was playing them. Wow. You know, they just came out. And your wife's like, I'm trying to watch Downton Abbey over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Would you please with the noise? So you're a relatively young man, but you've been doing this for like 20 years now, and it occurs to me that the business and culture around indie rock or alternative rock has changed radically since you began. And I was wondering, you know, what are some of the changes you've experienced? Man, back then, you know, and this is not that long ago. This is like 97, yeah. 98. If you think about it, you would write to K Records, you'd give them $3, mm -hmm. and you'd request a catalog. Yeah. Six weeks later, if you were lucky, a catalog would arrive, and you would look through it, and you would have no idea. You couldn't listen to any of the bands. Sure. You'd look at these black and white little sure. thumbnails of the covers, yeah. and you'd decide which ones you wanted. Yeah. You'd write a check. You'd send it, and, you yeah, know, God had seriously, two months later, you would get a package. Yeah. You know, it's just, uh, that's how you got music back then, just that long ago. And now it's YouTube or 
BitTorrent or wherever. Well, yeah, and now you just right, you <laughs> don't buy anything. And just you go to just, Pandora. You just give give everybody the finger. <laughs> but entering mu- the music world at that time, you, you know, I'm, I'm guessing like you're young. You you're, you have these songs. You want to get out. You want to travel. You want to see the world. Mm-hmm. Did you ever imagine it was going to be a career? Uh, no, not certainly not back then. I I didn't. You know, I I didn't even hope for that. Yeah. You know? Now you can have a niche audience and actually make a living. That's the terrific thing about the internet is people can discover you and learn about you and the big sort of record label controller, I don't know, I, I don't know exactly who used to totally yeah. control it, but they they called the shots. Yeah. And if they did if they weren't into what you were doing, then a kid in Arkansas was never going to find out about you. Yeah. Period, you know. Well, there's no question that the internet kind of changed the equation when it comes to people finding your music, but I also think culturally the world shifted a little bit. Um, you know, mainstream culture started to get more interested in kind of what was formerly alternative or college music. And one can make a case that your song in the movie Garden State yeah. um, contributed to that change. You know, in, in the scene that's famous to some people in that film, Natalie Portman's character uh, is listening to one of your songs, New Slang, and she shares it with another character. And when she does, she says, you got to hear this one song. It'll change your life, I swear. And so many people saw that movie. That soundtrack did extremely well. I wonder, did it change your life as a musician? Yeah, I mean, it, it really exposed us to tons and tons of that certain audience that that movie was hitting. Because of the success of that movie, we suddenly got all of these offers, mainly from colleges, to come oh. out and, you know, which are always really kind of good-paying gigs. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know? And uh, so we they basically budget, started yeah. touring again in support of kind yeah. of the soundtrack of that movie. Well, we've been talking about the business side of things, but, you know, the other thing that scene from that film demonstrates is the emotional attachment people have to your music. And um, I'm wondering if there are any songs of your own that you have that same attachment to. Is there a song that... That's, um, that's, it's like, like speaks oh, to I'm some James I'm getting them here, I'm getting them here. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's songs that, that touch me, yeah, that... You know, especially like when you're writing in early on. It's funny because like right now, my relationship with these songs on Port Morrow mm-hmm. is like that. You know, I'm still able to listen to them and they still feel like mine. At a certain point, they won't. Hmm. They'll, they'll, I'll, they'll grow will, numb to them? or Well, there will just be a distance and like, I don't know exactly the psychology behind it, but, you know, they'll, they'll be out and everyone will be listening to them. People will judge them. You know, people will either buy them or not buy them, or I don't know. It's, oh, it's strange. Their value will change. It'll become like yeah. And it's and so, so to me, I mean, I would say the song September is one that really uh, is important to me, which is the B side of this yeah. single coming out this yeah. week. The singer is talking about a love, you know, and it's yeah. very, it's like a genuine, real love. I'm mm-hmm. I'm reading into the fact that you're married now and yes. have a family. <laughs> it's my wife. Uh, <laughs> We have two standard questions we ask of everyone on the show. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? I don't like being asked to compile lists. Hmm. You know, give us your top five movies or your top yeah. five favorite songs. It's kind of like homework. It's like being <laughs> yeah. given a homework assignment. Okay, I guess number five is, uh, no, that'd be number, that wouldn't even be in there. No, you know, it's, it's yeah. uh, there's something kind of, I, and I'm not that type of person. I don't really, um, 
I'm not constantly obsessively listening to like the latest songs. Like I mean, I'll be asked questions like, "What are your top five records from uh, the last half of 2010?" You know, like I like I would know. Yeah, like yeah. I like, like I, was... I work at a record store or something. Uh, all right. So our other question is: yeah. Tell us something we don't know. Okay, can, can be about you, the band, right. or it could just be an f- interesting fact in the world. Well, something that I was uh, I was thinking it's kind of interesting the 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 fact that my dad was he was a munitions officer in the Air Force and wow. became the head of the the Inter Service Nuclear Weapons School in wow. in Albuquerque. So that's probably not something you would imagine, like some pop singer's dad. Yeah, but did, could he talk about his work, or was it? Um, well, that's another part of this story that's funny is that in Albuquerque there are these mountains just south of town called the Manzano Mountains, the mm-hmm. Apple Mountains. Mm-hmm. There's a massive, hollowed out uh, cavern. That, wow, that, like uh, G.I. Joe style. The U.S. government did. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm guessing. It is yeah. like one of those Lex Luthor type, yeah, you know, yeah. NORAD type things. So for, for years when I was, when the Cold War was on and stuff and when we lived in Albuquerque, my dad would tell me, he would be like, there are no nuclear weapons in Albuquerque at all. But dad, what about the, you know, Manzano facility yeah. and stuff? They, my friends say, no, they are not nuclear weapons. So, and I believed him and I told all my friends that and stuff and they believed me. That was total disinformation <laughs> I've learned. He was, that was the was... party line or whatever to tell, to, to just really be, because there were spies who were going to hear these conversations and you stuff. You were talking to your buddies at lunch? Yeah. And so they knew that it, that you just needed to wow. lie basically. So, and it was this massive storage facility for nuclear weapons, um, wow. and, but is no more. Now okay. it's decommissioned, and we don't have that. So many. you say. So, they say. so you say, James. You're obviously right. protecting your father. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> or, or I'm just again, you know, lying, putting out the ruse. Maybe the shins were created by the Russians to anesthetize <laughs> us. That would be cool. So Rico, my father too was in the chair force. The chair force. Yes. You say. Yes. That that's what some people called it because. Air Force guys usually work from bases, not so much foxholes oh, and other oh. stuff. Yeah. So anyway, cool. I've got the same background, but I'm not an indie rock star. Totally sad. Yeah. Maybe the Russians had a different plan for you. Ah. No. You know, come to think of it, I have been working on this plutonium enrichment device in my in my free time. Manchurian radio host. And that's the dinner party for this week. Next week, we talk to Michelle Azanavicius, director of the silent movie The Artist. And speaking of silent stars, Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Mm. Thanks also to Ravi Carmen, Chris Clark, Chris Holacek, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, and Judy McAlpin. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this weekend's dinner parties. Philly's beloved laid-back rockers Dr. Dog have a new album coming out this week. It's called Be the Void. And here's a track from it called That Old Black Hole. That old bon appetit.
Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Can, can I interrupt? What are you working on over there, man? You know, I don't, I don't really know. Comrade Brendan. Hello, who are you? Nobody. Come, bring your pretty toy, Brendan. We go to Albuquerque. Okay. Uh, can I come? Ow! Yet. <laughs>